0: This Star News Media Podcast is presented by North Chase Family Dentistry. Open evenings, Saturdays, and they probably take your insurance. Visit them on the web at northchasefamilydentistry.com. And by Tidewater Heating and Air Conditioning, servicing all major brands with highly trained technicians who are the best the industry has to offer, serving Wilmington and surrounding communities for more than 40 years. Learn more at tidewaterac.com. And by Cape Fear Pharmacy, a local, independent pharmacy providing health care and compounding services customized to meet our patients' needs. Visit CapeFearPharmacy.com today and let us take care of you. If you've ever walked into a liquor store, it's possible that you've seen the likes of whiskey, rum, and gin referred to as spirits. Now, you might be asking yourself, why did the distilled alcoholic beverages we consume share a word with what we commonly think of as ghostly entities? Well, the answer to that is about as muddled as a mojito. Some believe it can be traced back to the Middle East, where the word is derived from al-ghul, a term typically applied to alchemists and their habit for distilling medical elixirs. Through this process, the resulting elixir would have been considered the spirit of the original ingredients used. Others tie it to a more religious connotation related to the Holy Spirit, where the word spirit is synonymous with life. In this sense, Alcohol imbues one with life in a way. Some just get a rowdier dose than others. Whatever the origin, the word spirits, as it applies to the alcohol we rely on to calm our nerves and give us a dose of courage, undoubtedly gives off a mysterious vibe. And let's be honest, anyone who has been truly intoxicated probably felt like someone else had taken over their body and started steering their actions, causing them to do things they otherwise might not, or see things they can't quite explain the next day. You almost feel, in a word, possessed. So it's not that big of a leap to consider that the stories of haunted buildings and places can sometimes intersect with the consumption of alcohol. At least that's the case for one downtown Wilmington bar, which has a history of serving up more than just a stiff drink. This is Cape Fear Unearthed, the podcast exploring the persisting legends, historical oddities, and landmark stories of southeastern North Carolina. As always, I'm your host, hunter ingram and i'm a reporter with the star news here in wilmington this week on the show we're closing out our special series a cape fear unearthed halloween with the story of a subterranean bar in downtown wilmington that is as rich in history as it is in unexplained events lula's a pub is a popular destination for locals and tourists are bound to pass by its door ...if they spend enough time walking Wilmington's streets. Located on the south side of downtown, Lula's is tucked away in, or rather underneath, a historic building. The stories of which only further inform the ghostly tales that have come to percolate within its walls. With our Halloween series, we don't want to forget the history that sits at the core of all of our tales no matter how spooky they may be. So in this episode, I'm going to give you a bit of both. The known history of the building that houses this bar, and then the legend that sends a chill up the spines of its patrons. As always, I'll share with you this story as it has been passed down through history and told through legend. And fair warning, this story relies heavily on legend. But as is tradition with our Halloween series, we won't have a guest, just our tale. So sit back, settle in, and maybe grab yourself a pint for another installment of a Cape Fear Unearthed Halloween as we pour one out for the haunted legend of Lula's Pub. The entrance to Lula's Pub is an experience in and of itself. Venture off the sidewalk near the foot of Orange Street, just steps from the Cape Fear River, and you might happen upon this bar, which dates back to the 1990s. Walk underneath the patio of the Little Dipper restaurant above it, and you'll be greeted by what can only be described as a dark, sunken hallway. In a horror movie, this kind of foreboding entrance with a single light bulb at its arch would almost certainly be punctuated by a knife-wielding killer waiting at the other end. That's how spooky this entrance can be. But here, all that awaits you is a heavy wooden door, opening up to a beloved community pub. Once you're inside, string lights and neon signs Give it the dimly-lit aesthetic of a speakeasy or a really inviting dive bar. Add in the few tables up against the walls, a bar backed with a mirror, and a foosball table, and that's about all there is to this hideaway destination. It really just looks like any other small-town bar, except for its walls, which are made of big slabs of stone. These are known as ballast stones tossed off of ships that stopped into Wilmington all the way back to its early development by Europeans in the 1700s. As ships made their journey to the port to pick up exports like tar, turpentine, and timber, the empty cargo load had to be weighed down, or the vessel may overturn due to its buoyancy in the water. Once they arrived in Wilmington, they would remove the stones before loading up with exports and heading off to far-flung locations. These ships would face a fine if they dumped the stones directly into the already shallow river, possibly impeding naval traffic, so the stones were tossed on shore. In a region rich in sand, but not so much in stone, these were considered ideal and sturdy materials for building the foundation of colonial and antebellum structures in Wilmington. Today, you can walk around downtown and still see these stones cemented into plenty of structural foundations, seeing as how Lula's is an underground bar. Its walls are the foundation of its original structure, which has long since been claimed by time and probably a fire or two, which were known to erupt on the waterfront, thanks to the storage of naval stores on the wharf. The current building dates back to as early as 1866, when it was bought by German immigrant Klaus Stinnerman, who had arrived in Wilmington in the 1840s. Stinnerman operated a grocery store out of the building, which had a built-in saloon. And although it was his grocery store that was preserved in city records, there's another grocery store, at least according to legend, that predated it on the same property. And it's in this store that Lula's supposed haunting gets its origin story. This store was said to be owned by former Northerners, who were sympathetic to the abolitionist cause and the plight of the runaway slave, trying to find his or her way to freedom. Their efforts were said to be aided by the narrow tunnel that ran underneath their store, which you may remember as one of the tunnels we discussed in one of our earliest episodes on Jacob's Run. This network of narrow enclosures were built over natural streams in the late 1700s to use as a drainage system. One of the rumors that swirled around the network of bricked-over streams was that they were used as part of the Underground Railroad. Slaves seeking transport on the many ships that came in and out of Wilmington would hide in these damp, dark, cramped tunnels awaiting a ship they could board out of the South. Although historians have never found evidence to substantiate those claims, maybe even the rumors of this possible path to freedom were enough to attract a man named Cooter to the general store at the corner of Third and Orange Streets on one of his many attempts to escape through Wilmington. Cooter was a slave on a plantation about 60 miles outside of town, and he had a habit of trying to break free of the chains of servitude, or at least that's how legend tells it. The name of the plantation is never part of the story nor is its exact location. It's just referred to as a general plantation, with enough enslaved labor that his absence wasn't noticed all that much until he was captured and brought back. Nineteen times he did this, each time making his way to Wilmington to try and find someone, anyone, willing to help him stow away on a ship. Mick Sherwood the current co-owner of Lula's, often tells the story of Cooter to those guests interested in the supernatural. But he's up front with them about the fact that this story he tells has been told to him by someone who had it told to them, which is a roundabout way of saying that it's been filtered down through history, its details shaven off a little bit more each time it's told. But a few hallmarks of this story have survived decades of recitation. One of them being that Cooter was caught and brought back to his owner's plantation every time he escaped. But it wasn't because he was careless. Quite the opposite, in fact. He was actually known to be very deliberate and methodical about his movements while trying to escape, opting for slow and steady rather than fast and noisy. He would hug the banks of the river as he made his way to Wilmington, keeping his head down and avoiding any sudden movements in the water. But he also had a fatal flaw. He had a hard time saying no when it came time to help other slaves try to escape their own situations. Some versions of the story say he even gave up on finding a spot on an outbound ship for himself in favor of securing passage for others. Other variations of his story say it was these people who he picked up along the way that foiled his attempts at being stealth and called attention to themselves. In other words, Cooter was a good guy, but in the era of slavery, a kind heart didn't do one much good in his situation. After nearly two dozen escape attempts, Cooter's overseer finally caught wind of his repeated efforts, likely after checking back on his receipt books for all the times he paid off bounty hunters to bring him back. With an ego almost certainly bruised by not catching on sooner, this man decided to make an example of Cooter. On the final time he was returned to the plantation, the man brought all the enslaved workers together and told Cooter that if he wanted his freedom so badly, he could have it, because paying to have him brought back each time was becoming way too costly. So the man presented Cooter with his freedom papers and told him to sign on the dotted line. But just as he earned his freedom, the overseer signaled two henchmen. To grab Cooter and hold him down, as he proceeded to saw off his feet at the ankle. After he was done, the man menacingly told Cooter and all those forced to watch that he was now free to go anywhere he pleased, if only he could get up and walk. Cooter was taken in by his former fellow slaves and nursed back to health as much as he could be. In time. He was able to move around, and with makeshift crutches tucked underneath his arms, he began the long walk to Wilmington. It's said that he wanted to be in Wilmington so badly because he saw that he could do some good here, ushering slaves to freedom along the river. Now you may be asking yourself, why is this man's name Cooter? Well, Mick said that the nickname came courtesy Of a Native American man that Cooter met after he settled in Wilmington. What their relationship was is unknown, but it was at least friendly enough in time that he gave Cooter his name, an American Indian word for turtle, given because Cooter's heightened habit of awareness often saw him poke his head out and look around before advancing to his next stop. Like so many slaves, Cooter's real name is not known. After reaching Wilmington, he managed to find adequate medical care, and even established a relationship with the general store owners, who legend has it were helping slaves hide and then escape through the tunnel underneath their business. Today, the access they had to that tunnel is walled off as part of that dark entrance I told you about in Tallulah's. When he's telling people the story of Cooter, Mick even bangs on the wall to show them how hollow it sounds, as if there's an empty space behind it. In Wilmington, Cooter could finally do what he had come to see as his ultimate purpose in life, to help save his people from the cruelty of slavery. But it wasn't just anyone that he was helping emancipate. Cooter would return to his former plantation home at least three times, each time sneaking out a few enslaved workers and taking them to Wilmington, where he had made enough connections to have safe passage waiting for them. But it wouldn't be long before his former owner caught wind of his workforce being siphoned off. After asking around, he found out that Cooter had been seen on the plantation in recent weeks and he wasn't pleased. So he sent a group of men to Wilmington, where he knew Cooter had taken up residence, and they found him at the general store. As soon as they arrived, the malicious gang took Cooter, the general store owners, and their two children hostage outside what was supposedly the store's kitchen, and it was there that they told them how this was going to go. The family was to immediately stop helping slaves find a way to escape through Wilmington. And if they didn't, the men were going to return and kill their young children. And to prove just how serious they were about this threat, they executed Cooter in front of them. Now, I want to go ahead and remind you again that this story is a legend. So we don't know if Cooter was even a real person but this is the story that has been handed down to help explain some of the strange things that would eventually happen in the space in and around Lula's. After Cooter's death, the story goes into a bit of a blind spot, and it doesn't pick back up until Lula's opens its doors in the 1990s. In those intervening years, the building and property changed hands and names, City records show that by 1901, the address belonged to J.W.H. Fuchs, a shoe merchant who is said to have operated a grocery store and saloon on the property, just like Stinnerman did in the late 1800s. According to the Wilmington Tours app by local historians Beverly Tetterton and Dan Camacho, candy was made in the building as well from 1934 to 1947 and they say it was possibly made in the basement that is now Lula's. Starting in the 1940s, the entire property went through a revolving door of restaurants, including the Rhodes Meat Market, Stinnerman's Restaurant, and Mint Julep's Nightclub. Lula's opened in the early 1990s in the basement space, and Mick bought it from its originating owners in March 2000, quickly inheriting the stories of Cooter that he had already heard as a patron. He said the previous owner learned of the legend after sensing some sort of presence on the property and calling what amounted to a seance to try and communicate with whatever was hanging on to the place. To help facilitate this otherworldly conversation, a few people gathered in Lula's one night and asked the spirit to reveal its name. To do so, They covered the walls in post-its, with a name written on each one. They told the spirit to knock the incorrect names off the wall, leaving only its name hanging. Mick was told that over a few hours post-its would fall to the ground, with only one reading Cooter still hanging. Whether you choose to believe this unorthodox method is up to you. But it was from that encounter that the legend of Cooter was born. Supposedly linked to stories of a former slave killed after trying to smuggle himself or others out of Wilmington. For what it's worth, I haven't seen any of these stories when they aren't already linked to Lula's. When he tells this story, Mick has a habit of reminding you that he doesn't really believe in ghosts. But even he'll admit that the one significant encounter he's had at Lula's is hard to explain away. It happened in the first few years of owning the bar, when he and his business partner loaned out some plates from the former restaurant upstairs to a group of men hosting a St. Patrick's Day party at their own restaurant on the other side of town. The men brought the loaned dishes back one night and Mick asked them to help him lug them back up to the kitchen, which was vacant at the time. After he made his way up the staircase, he pushed the key into the deadbolt and opened the door. But as soon as he did, the door slammed back in his face. He was stunned, and he wasn't really sure what just happened, but in his mind he started to rationalize it. Had a gust of wind blowing through the empty building pushed back on the door? Was there a kickback mechanism on it that he wasn't aware of? He wasn't really sure what to think, so he grabbed the handle and tried to push it open again. But he couldn't, because the deadbolt had somehow been reengaged. Again, he was confused, but he reinserted the key to unlock it a second time. And only turned it about halfway before something fought against him and flipped it back into the locked position. Mick said his first instinct wasn't to think of this as a ghost, but rather that someone very human was on the other side of the door, standing there waiting to defend themselves. Maybe they were squatting in the empty building and had been startled by their late night visit. At this point, the group of men carrying crates of plates had retreated a few steps in disbelief. And then that's when they hear what Mick described as a seemingly bottomless supply of silverware and plates crashing down as if knocked off a table by someone rushing past it. Worrying someone was indeed squatting in the building, they set down the plates and agreed to back each other up as they tried to get inside one last time. So Mick inserted the key, and the door opened without resistance. Once inside, they saw that the space was pitch black and silent. Nothing moved or out of place. There was no silverware spilled out on the floors, or plates broken into pieces. In fact, there were no plates or silverware anywhere to be found. There was no sign of anything they had just heard, or anyone they may have just interacted with. The only thing out of sorts was the feeling Mick still remembers the second he walked through the door. He said he felt like he was stepping through the ether, an eerie sense of being disassociated with one's own plane of existence. Although he has no way of explaining what happened, Mick certainly has a theory. On the way up to the kitchen that night, he not only remembered that it was outside of this space that Cooter was supposedly executed, but he also recalled a conversation with his partner, who had warned him earlier that day that the men returning the plates were known for being racially insensitive. They had a habit of telling racist jokes at a poker night that he had attended a few nights prior. Mick was not a fan of this behavior, but it hadn't really stuck out to him until this strange encounter. Had Cooter been behind that door, unwilling to let these men into the property he's been bound to for more than a century at this point? Had he picked up on Mick's internalized realization of who these men were and what kind of prejudices they held? That seems to be the best explanation that Mick can come up with for that frightening night. One that has never happened again. Though it should be noted, those men never came back either. If that was all that happened at Lula's, maybe they could write it off as a fluke. But guests of the bar have long had their own strange encounters. Many of them involve a patron or two sitting at the bar on an otherwise empty night when they all of a sudden see or feel something passing by them in the mirror that hangs behind the bar. They feel the light breeze of a person walking past them and turn around to see it couldn't be possible because no one else was there. Mick experienced this himself a few times when he was just a patron of the bar, but he laughed it off as a side effect of the alcohol in his hand. At Lula's, it's almost a badge of honor to have such an experience. It's a sign of true patronage for its longtime dedicated customers. But as with any ghost story, there are plenty of variations to Cooter's tale. The book, Ghost of Old Wilmington, claims that Cooter actually hid in the tunnel adjacent to Lula's on one of his many escape attempts but was discovered by the search party sent out by his owner. To punish him, they took an axe to his feet right then and there, and left him to bleed out in the tunnel, which he ultimately did. The ghost tours and haunted pub crawls that come through Lula's also claim that they've had more encounters with a whole host of supposed spirits. They claim mysterious shadows have been seen in the back corner of the bar, where the wall is said to butt up against that tunnel. They also claim that doors have creaked open on their own, and at least one jukebox started spinning records unprompted. Mick said that he can't corroborate any of those stories about the bar that he's owned for two decades this year. What he can tell you is what he's experienced. And for some, that's more than enough to believe that there's someone or something still lingering on the property. Thankfully, Cooter's rumored presence at 138 South Front Street is not a malicious one, or even one that scares the owners or patrons of Lula's. In fact, Mick calls him a sweetheart, who legend has it continues to watch over the spot he once used to send people just like him off to freedom, something he would never get for himself. For what it's worth, I've never come across a slave or anyone named Cooter in the years of researching this podcast, but there are plenty of records out there still waiting to be found. Sure, this story has all the makings of a good legend, and it could be completely fabricated, but that doesn't mean that the legend of Cooter isn't ingrained into the bones of Lula's and cemented into its history, just like the balastones that make up its walls. That's it for this episode. Of a Cape Fear Unearthed Halloween and our look at the supposed haunting of Lula's Pub. Thank you so much for joining me. I want to wish everyone a happy Halloween and a reminder to please be safe no matter how you choose to celebrate this year. Until our next episode, please make sure that you're a member of our Facebook group where listeners can ask questions about our episodes and share their own memories of the region's history. In that group, I post extra content for each of our episodes and all of my coverage of local history for the Star News. You can find that group by searching Cape Fear Unearthed on Facebook. If you have episode ideas or questions about the show, you can email me directly at unearthed at gmail.com. As always, you can get a list of all the books, articles, and resources used in researching this podcast in the show notes of each episode. Cape Fear Unearthed was written, edited, and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram. You can find more of my work at StarNewsOnline.com or by following me on Twitter at Hunter underscore Wesley. Additional editing for the show is done by Adam Fish. This podcast was made possible by listeners and readers like you. Support local journalism and Cape Fear Unearthed by subscribing to the Star News today at starnewsonline.com slash subscribe. And while you're subscribing to things, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get the show so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, leave us a review which will help more people find Cape Fear unearthed. Until next time, get out and explore the Cape Fear region on your own. You never know what spooky things you might unearth.